Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. So, uh, hey, uh, welcome to Rocky Peak on this windy day. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike, and uh, we're in the midst of a series right now called The Marriage Matrix for the third week of a five-week series. And so if this is your first uh, time here, I want to welcome you. Inside of your, uh, your weekend program <laughs> is a white message note sheet that will help you follow along. So I encourage you to, uh, to take that out. Isn't this wind amazing? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I know you're hating it, but I love it. It's so great. We've uh, uh, kind of a special weekend. You know, we got the men's retreat going on this weekend, so there are a lot of guys up there, and, and so just a lot, lot happening. Um, but we're going to go into our time of teaching at this point, and uh, so I'd like to, to pray for us, and then uh, let's just jump right in. Father, uh, thank you so much for what you're doing here at our church. Thank you for your love for us and the plans you have for us, Lord, both the as your children and as a church. And so we pray that today as we come into your presence, as we talk about uh, what it looks like to become soulmates, or whether we're single, looking for that to happen, or, or married, and we want to see that happen in our marriage, we pray that you just teach us things that perhaps we didn't know, things that some things perhaps we, we once knew and forgotten, things we need to be reminded of. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the story starts... It was a mid-December day. It was, it was the dead of winter. It was in Virginia. It was freezing cold outside. He was home from college uh, where he'd been, uh, for the, the, the Christmas holidays, and she was working in a department store. In fact, she was working in the photography department of this department store, and the year was just a few years before World War II. He came in that day, and, and he was upset because this photograph that he had had reproduced there had come out badly. And and so he came to her, and, and he was trying to get a refund. And it was her job to keep him from getting a refund. And she won out. And looking back on that day, he described himself as he was cold, but, but uh, kind of uh, polite. And she was charming, but very annoying. And uh, she won out that day, and she guaranteed him that if he'd come back again, she'd make sure the picture was done properly, and she'd take care of it. And so he agreed, and he left that day. And on any other day, that would have been the end of it, the end of their relationship. But when he got home that day, he got a call from another buddy who was home from school for the holidays. He said, hey, some of us are going, several couples. We're going to head out, and we're going to go see this other friend that just got back from Switzerland. Would you like to go? Can you bring a date? He said, I'd love to go. And the first girl that came to mind was the, the girl he'd met that afternoon, that girl with the beautiful eyes, the brown hair, the heart-shaped face. So he called her up just on a, a whim, and she said she would go. And so that evening they pulled up, his two buddies, and or the, the couple he was going with, and he was in the back seat, and they let her in the back seat, and they took off this hour-and-a-half drive to visit the friend who was home from Switzerland, who lived out in the countryside in a Virginia state, you know, the white colonnades, huge, huge, uh, huge house. So they were, it was an hour-and-a-half drive. It was a bitter cold night, and so as they were in the back seat, they were talking and catching up and getting to know one another a little bit. Turns out that, that he'd grown, their, their backgrounds were very different. He'd grown up in a large estate in the countryside of Virginia, complete with the old stone farmhouse and the, uh, his own private orchard with 10 different varieties of apples, servants, dogs, uh, own park, his uh, own pond, forest. It was a great place for a boy to grow up. She'd grown up in a little town in New Jersey. Her dad was a, a pastor. He was a a Methodist, or was it Episcopalian, couldn't decide, pastor, and uh, he died early in her life, and so she'd had to put off college until now, and she'd come into this, his hometown where she was going to be going to school, and that's how it started. 
They had a great time that day, just riding in the back seat, getting to know one another. When they arrived, they walked up to this huge house, and it was a bitter cold night. They walked inside, and there was a, a fireplace there and a hu- huge roaring fire the friend had prepared. They, uh, they shared a few drinks with their friends who were there, and then afterwards they did some dancing, and later in the evening, they ended up in front of the fireplace together. His name was Sheldon Van Aken, he, but he went by the name Van. Her name was Jean Davies, but her friends called her Davy. And so there, for the first time alone, Van and Davy talked, and they began to share their hearts, share their stories, share their lives. They found that they had a lot in common, though they'd come from different backgrounds. Though they'd grown up so differently, they both have, had a love for life. They were adventurers at heart. They loved life. They loved beauty. They loved nature. They both liked ships. They liked being out at ships at sea, especially in the midst of a storm. He was especially impressed by that. They, loved, uh, they both loved dogs. They both loved canoes. They both loved um, flying an open cockpit planes, biplanes. They both loved uh, great books. They loved music. They loved great poetry. And as they shared, their hearts began to come together. And most of all, most of all, they believed, they both shared the conviction that the secret to happiness in life and fulfillment was to find a great love and to love one person for the rest of your life. That's what all the great books and all the great poetry said. And as they shared their stories that night, their hearts began to come together, and they began to fall in love. In the coming months, as they pursued that love, they came to the conclusion that the secret of keeping love alive was sharing everything. And so they made it their goal in life. They were going to be as as close as two people could ever become. They weren't Christ followers at the time. In fact, they called themselves high pagans. But later on, when they heard about Christ's teaching, that the two becoming one, they said that had they known about Christ at that time, they would have felt a definite kindred spirit. And so they set out to become as close as two people could become. They had a couple rules for the relationship. Rule number one was no secrets. And rule number two is they're going to share everything. And they were serious about this. They made a commitment that, that if one of them had read a great book in the past that had influenced them greatly, that the other would read it too, even if it was a childhood book, just to catch up. They made a, a commitment that if, if, if one of them loved a great piece of music, the other was unfamiliar with, the other would learn that great piece of music. They made a decision that if they were to read a book together in the future, that they'd either read it out loud or they'd read it one right after another so they'd share the experience. And when it came to seeing concerts and plays, which they both loved doing, that neither would see a concert or a play unless the other one would see it too. And so they started off on this venture to see how close two people could become, convinced that with every shared experience and every shared story, every sharing of their heart together, that they were tying another string, another a bond between them that would become unbreakable over time. Well, today we're continuing on this series. It's a series called The Marriage Matrix. It flows out of something that Jesus once said. Jesus was once asked, um, So what is marriage about, and what's God's vision for marriage? And he said, if you want to understand God's vision for marriage, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the garden. You have to go back to the first man, the first woman, the events that transpired in Genesis 1 through 3 to understand God's vision. You have to go back to the beginning, back to what we're calling the matrix, the source, the situation out of which all marriage flows. 
And so what we're doing every week in this five-week series is we're going back to some of the key statements, some of the key, the key events that happened in Genesis 1 through 3 to see what we can learn about God's vision for marriage, where we got off track as a race, how do we get back on track and recapture that vision. And like I've said every week, it doesn't really matter whether you're married or single. If you're married, obviously, this series has application for you right away. But if you're single, in some ways, it's even more important because the first step towards experiencing God's vision for this relationship we call marriage is to get a clear vision and picture of what it looks like. And then secondly, what kind of person do we need to become and what kind of person do we need to be looking for? And so today, uh, our topic is oneness. Today, our topic is becoming soulmates. What does it look like for two to become one? This is what marriage is all about. And so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. And as you turn there, remember that what we've, we've learned so far in this series is that when God created the first man and the first woman, that he created them in different ways. He created the first man out of the dust of the earth, that he took the chemical elements in, the, in, in like planet earth and rearranged them and created the body and then breathed life into him. But when he created the woman, he came about it differently. He actually created her from the side of man, from the same stuff, from the same DNA. That he created from the one, he created the two, so that the two could come back together and be one. And so let's pick it up in chapter 2. In verse 23, and so uh, God creates the woman from the side of the man, and he brings her to the man, and the man recognizes what has happened. He recognizes how God has created the woman differently than he created the man, and he says, now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, we're made from the same stuff. We're made from the same DNA. And, it says, um, and so she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then it says, for this reason, because from the one came the two, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He will leave his most important relationships in life, and he will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so as we've seen throughout this series, that marriage at its core is about two becoming one. And then in a sense, every marriage, God's vision for every marriage is to recreate, to re-experience this oneness, you know, that, that marriage was all about. And so today, that's our topic. And the question is, how does that happen? How does it happen that two become one? What are the things that need to happen for two people to become uh, one person? And there in your note sheet, on the very front page, there's a section called the marriage matrix. And and I want to give you right there, before you turn the page, right there, I want to give you four key words that are going to help guide us the next couple of weeks. These are four key ingredients, four key puzzle pieces, if you will. You know, when you have a little child, if you've ever had a, a toddler or a preschooler in your home, you know those puzzles they make that they're like wood puzzles and they just have three or four pieces and you have to put them all together to see the picture. Well, in the same way, uh, what I'm going to suggest is that if you want to understand God's vision of oneness, what it takes to be soulmates, there's actually four key ingredients or four components, and all four are important. You've got to put them in to see the picture, to see kind of the vision of what God is, uh, wants us to, to catch. And so I'm going to give you the four words right now, and then we'll jump in and talk about the first two this week. So the first word, the first word is the word Priority. The first thing we're going to see the next two weeks is that if you want to experience God's vision 
for oneness, if you want to become soulmates, the first step is you have to make that relationship your top priority in life, which means not only are they the most important person in your life, but that you will always make them the top person in your life the rest of your life. Okay, we'll come back and talk about that. Number two, the second word is intimacy. And by intimacy, I'm talking about emotional intimacy. It's the sharing of hearts, the sharing of souls, the, the, the sharing of, of two becoming one. It's, it's the deepest part of me sharing with the deepest part of you. We'll talk about that more later. A third ingredient, third component is sexuality. And so God's designed us even in our bodies so that we're designed to go together. It was very intentional on his part. And so that even in our bodies, we could recreate and, and kind of communicate this oneness in this relationship. And the number four, the fourth word is spirituality. And for us to come together and experience God's vision for oneness, it's important that the deepest part of me, I share with the deepest part of you, and the deepest part of us is the part where God resides, the part where we experience God in our life. And so if we truly want to be one, we have to be, learn to be one at a, that level, at spiritual level, okay? So these are the four key components. Now, if you turn the page, there's a section on your note sheet there called the sharing of soulmates. <laughs> We're just going to have to ignore the wind, right? <laughs> if, the, if the ceiling comes off, we'll stop the service. Other than that, we're going on. Okay, so you see this section says the sharing of soulmates connecting the four quadrants. And you'll see there a circle diagram. And this, I want this to help us kind of picture that the, that the circle diagram is picturing the oneness. It's a picture of the soulmate. And it's got four quadrants because these four key ingredients and everyone is important. So what we're going to do is this week and next, we're going to talk about the first two components this week. Then we're going to come back next week and talk about the second, the last two components. Okay, so let's get going. Number one, the first quadrant. Quadrant number one, the key word there is, is priority. That if we want to experience God's plan for oneness, that it starts by making a commitment that this relationship will become the most important relationship in my life. That if you're married, that your spouse becomes the most important human relationship, your top priority person in your life. And of course, this takes in not only that you're, the, you're like my top priority in the short run, but you're the top priority for the rest of my life, right? That, we, that this is a lifetime priority, which is kind of key to experiencing the oneness, as we'll, we'll see later. Now, this, this, uh, this lesson jumps out of uh, chapter 2 of Genesis. I want you to look at that verse again, chapter 2 and verse 24. Chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, uh, For this reason, remember the reason is, is that from the one came the two. For this reason, that a man will leave his father and mother, he'll leave his closest relationship in life, his family of origin, and he'll be united to his wife, and then they will become uh, one flesh. So <clears throat> I want you to catch this, that the marriage as its core is, requires a leaving. It's a leaving of all other relationships in the dust in terms of priority. Now, not leaving of all in the sense that we, don't have, we only have one relationship, we don't have any others, obviously, but, but marriage requires a leaving, that if we want to experience God's 
plan, God's vision for marriage, it requires that you and I kind of leave all others behind in sense of priority. This relationship is my top and priority. It's more important than my father. It's more important than my mother. It's more important than my sister. It's more important than my brother. It's more important than an aunt or a favorite uncle. It's more important than my children, if God blesses with children. It's more important than my coworkers at work or my friends in the Bible study. This relationship is my top relationship, most important relationship in life, okay? And of course, and then part of that is that, that not only is it my top most important relationship, it will always be my most important relationship. And that's critical because that creates the safety net that allows us to move on, as we'll do in a few minutes, to number two and talk about intimacy. Because if I'm going to share the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you, I need to know you're always going to be there. If you're going to bail on me, then I'm going to hold back. I'm going to protect myself because I'm not going to share the deepest part of me and have you leave, you see? And so it becomes a critical part uh, of the commitment. Now, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that this is exactly how relationships start, isn't it? When a couple meets and they fall in love and they go into that rocket blast stage we talked about last week, the chemistry there, it's overpowering. There's just such a natural attraction that their natural tendency is to put this person as more important than any other person in the world. In fact, for those of you who are single, let me talk to you for just a minute because this is a huge danger. One of the huge dangers if you're single is when you meet someone and fall in love, there's a natural tendency to just leave all your other relationships behind. So, for example, you just kind of leave your friends in the dust, you leave your family in the dust, you just go off in the sunset with this person. It's such a strong natural tendency. But it's so important that you don't do that because this is the most important decision of your life. Do I want to pursue this person for marriage? And you are at the kind of the, the most loony point in your life, right? Remember I said last week that, that when you lose your heart, you lose your head, Right? And so it's very important that we have people that we trust and love around us who can help us make sure we're making a good decision here. They give us some wise counsel. And so it's very dangerous to run off and just, and singles do this all the time. It's all of a sudden, you know, it's like, uh, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so. Yeah, they're dating. <laughs> they're, they're gone, you know. And so you don't want to do that. But here's the point. The point is this is very natural. That when we first meet someone, we fall in love, it's very natural to make them our top priority in our life. Very natural. But here's the funny thing. The funny thing is after we get married, we tend to take this relationship for granted. Uh, sometimes for men, it's because we got that hunter thing going on in us, you know? So we have stalked her. You know, we've, we've bagged her. You know, we've got her. We got the marriage piece down, you know? And so while the dating stage, man, we were all out there. We were spending the money, the time, the energy. Now we got her. Now we've achieved that, right? We've, we can check that off the list. Now we move on to other things like our career, for example. You see, very natural for men to do this. Uh, for, for women, it tends to be often, okay, you get married, and then especially when kids come, it can be very much that, hey, okay, the kids now become the focus. I can't tell you how many men I've talked to that felt like, man, I, our relationship was going great until we had kids. I felt like I lost my wife. You know, I, 
It's like she was more in love with the kids than she was with me. Very common, you see? So we get married. When we get married, very clear. It's like this person's the top priority, and then just because of busyness or life or whatever, we can wake up one day, and there's someone else that has become the top priority. It could be coworkers. It could be friends. It could be the guys at the ballpark or the guys at the office could be uh, uh, just a million things, especially the kids can be a big one, but all of a sudden we can wake up one day, and so we've got to be clear on this. If we want to recapture God's vision for a relationship, for marriage, it starts by saying, you are the top priority in my life. You are the most important relationship in my life. Now, part of that commitment, though, is saying not only are you the most important person in my life right now, but you will always be the most important person in my life. And without that commitment to always, you see, there's not the environment there for the sharing that needs to happen, as we'll see in a few minutes. Now, this commitment to always is something Jesus talked about as pivotal marriage. In fact, we won't turn there right now, but on your note sheet, if you want to check this out later, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was once asked a question about marriage and divorce. And, and is it okay to stop this relationship? Is, is it okay to be in love with someone, to pursue someone, to, to kind of be one flesh with someone, and then at some point change your mind? Is that okay? And, and what Jesus says is, hey, you know, to understand the answer, you have to go back to the garden. You have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the first man, the first woman, back to the events of Genesis 1 through 3, back to what I'm calling the matrix of marriage. And he says, what you'll find out there, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. In fact, the exact verses we looked at today in Genesis 2, about the two, uh, two coming together and being one. He quotes that passage, and then he says something very interesting. Jesus is now commenting on the Bible. And when Jesus comments on the Bible, you want to sit up. And notice, and here's what he says. He says, so they come together, and the, the, two become, the two become one. And he says, so, now catch this. He says, so, when the, they are no longer two, when a, pe- when a couple gets married, he says, they are no longer two, but they are one because God has made them one. And so he says that in a supernatural way, in a mystical way, in a way that we don't understand, that when a couple comes together in marriage, that there is actually a unity that's created, that God creates. He says, therefore, since God has made them one, you don't want to be tearing apart, I don't care who you are, what God has put together. What God has put together, let no one tear apart, you see? And so, so this combination, if we want to experience God's vision for marriage, it's a commitment on our part that you will be my most important person in my life, but not just for now, but for the rest of my life. Now, whatever I'm teaching on this, I always want to do just a real quick sidebar and say, well, Mike, are there, are there no exceptions to this? Well, yes, the Bible even gives us some. I mean, obviously, if your spouse doesn't want to be married and they leave you and they're going off with someone else, that unity has been broken, right? And so, okay, we can understand there's times when we need to say, all right, it's over. Uh, there's times, I think, there's other times, I think, when there's, uh, there's a lot of, maybe there's ongoing abuse or dangerous situations or whatever, where it's just obviously the lesser of two evils, okay, we're going to break that bond. 
But here's what I want you to catch. As followers of Jesus here at Rocky Peak, and I realize that some of you are brand new and you're just checking out this Jesus thing, and that's great. We're just glad you're here. Um, but for most of us here as a church, we're followers of Jesus. We don't gather together to look for loopholes. <laughs> you know, we, we gather together to recapture Jesus' vision for life, right? That's what we're here for. And so how is life supposed to be lived? And Jesus is really clear. Okay, if you want to recapture God's vision for the garden, it starts by making this person the top priority in your life and saying it's not just for now, it's forever. And it's that commitment that allows the relationship to thrive. In fact, I remember a few years ago coming across a study it was cited by the, the parrots in their book that I've quoted a couple of times, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And in this study, there were 6,000 doctors and three, uh, no, three doctors doing a study of 6,000 marriages, 1,500 divorces. They wanted to figure out, so what do they have in common? Like, like why, why do some people stay married? Why do people stay married? What, what, are the, what are the common ingredients? And they studied these, all these thousands of marriages. And you know what they came out with? The, the, the most clear common denominator of why people get married or why, why people stay married or why people get divorced is their whole view of the commitment process. What they found is that those couples who look at marriage as this is a lifetime thing, come hell or high water, we're making it through, that what happens is those couples have a higher level of motivation to make their marriage work because they're not giving themselves any option out. And so when the marriage is broken, they're more likely to work on it to make it fit no matter what it takes. The couples that had a lesser view of that, like, hey, I love you today, but if things get really tough, uh, you know, we'll have, to t- we'll have to see how it works out. That obviously when things get really tough, it's much easier for them to end the marriage. And so this is their quote that they put there on your note sheet. He says, uh, this is the conclusion of that study of the, the, the 7,500 marriages and divorces. <laughs> There may be nothing more important in a marriage than the determination that it shall persist. With such a determination, individuals force themselves to adjust and accept situations which would seem sufficient grounds for a breakup if continuation of the marriage were not the prime objective. You see what he's saying there? So it's this, this commitment not only to make you my top priority, but I will always make you my top priority. We may go through hard times. We may fight. It may be difficult. But we will figure out a way. We will not leave. One of the key ingredients, you see, of creating an environment where soulmates can develop. It's not the only piece. It's an important piece to start. Now, and I heard a story uh, recently about a, a woman named Marty. And I want to tell you a story. Um, so Marty, uh, she's in a long-term relationship. She, um, it, it's, they're not married, uh, but they are sleeping together. And so you got that actual sex, extra sexual bond thing going. And so um, it's a very close relationship. And after being together for several years, they go through some major conflict and they can't resolve it. And so over time, they end up breaking up. And it's extremely painful for her. It's so hard. And it's taken her, it takes her years to get over this. But while she's going through this process, she's broken up. She's a few years down the road. She meets the guy. They fall in love. They decide to get married. And they do get married. But now she's married, and she finds that she still has this basic insecurity and fear inside of her because of what happened in the previous relationship. 
Inside of her, this is almost paradigm that if, if things go bad in a marriage, the person leaves. And it was so painful, she just lives in fear of that. And so what happens is they're married for three or four years. Their marriage is going well. But about year four, they begin to run into some major snags. And the big issue was finances. And they began to fight over this, and they could not resolve the issues. And so these, these fights would often become very ugly, loud screaming matches and horrible, that sort of a thing. And so uh, over time, what she found, is this went on for months, the longer it went on, the more she found that she began to subconsciously just kind of back off that relationship. She began to pull away, almost at a subconscious level, from her, her, for, from her husband. And looking back, she would describe as what I was doing was, what life had taught me is that when things get tough, the person's going to leave. And so it's going to be very painful. So I was beginning to prepare myself for that pain ahead of time. I was beginning to distance myself. Well, fortunately, one night they had a breakthrough. They were talking about finances. They were going through this very painful discussion, both yelling, screaming, it's horrible. They both leave, you know. They come back later that night, and her husband does something very profound. He, he comes into her. He puts his arms around her, and he says, Marty, I just want you to know one thing. He says, I don't care if we never solve our financial issues. I don't care if we have tension over this the rest of our lives. I want you to know that I'm never going to leave you. That no matter how bad it gets, I will never, ever leave you. And something broke inside of her. And at that moment, she realized this deep fear that she'd been living with. And the relationship was able to move on to a new level, you see, because, she, because he had provided that security that she needed for, her relation, for the relationship uh, to thrive. And so Jesus comes and says, okay, so the first step, if you want to recreate God's vision, is the word priority. You're the most important person, and you will always be the most important person. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, that's the place it starts. Now, before we move on to the second word, I want to say one thing here. One issue is, so let's say that you're in a marriage right now, and this is not your story. Um, that you would say to me, Mike, honestly, in our marriage, it's not that way. Either for both, you know, my husband and myself, or my wife and myself, that we are not the most important person in each other's lives. It's clear. Or it could just be one person. And, and so uh, they're, they're not the most important person in my life. Um, and so what do we do? Well, uh, I think the first thing to say is we need to start to say, now, why is that the case? Why is the case? Sometimes it's just a simple answer to this. Sometimes it's just a time issue. You know, one of the things that happens in a, in a, while we're dating is that we put, um, we put aside huge amounts of time for one another, don't we? You fall in love, and, and I mean, couples do amazing. They'll stay up till late at night, get up early in the morning. They'll do whatever it takes to, to be together. Uh, I, I did a wedding recently, and, and uh, uh, the guy was a, a trucker. And, and so he would, he would make these hauls, long-haul trucks, you know, make the three- or four-day thing. He would, he would take a three- or four-day run and turn it into a two-day run. He just couldn't stand to be away from the girl he was, he was dating, he was, he was engaged to. I, I did a one wedding this last year where there was a couple where they actually quit their jobs because their jobs were getting in the way of their relationship, you know. And so they got new jobs that would allow them to spend more time together. And so this is how it is when you fall in love. It's like we will stand on our head to make time for one another. But then we get married, and we begin to assume the relationship will always be there. And life gets busy, 
And sometimes it's just as simple as that. We just need to solve the time issue. We need to make time for one another. You know, um, Lynn and I, we kind of have a little tradition that uh, most days when I leave the office, we, it's about a 20-minute drive to my house, actually 17, close enough. And, uh, and so um, typically when I pull out, I, I'll, I'll take my Bluetooth, you know, stick it in my ear, call Lynn, and for the next 15 minutes, we'll just talk on the way home. And, uh, and so I just tell her, you know, she'll say, how was your day? I tell them about my day. How was your day? She tells me about the day. Nothing deep, nothing profound, but it just keeps us connected. By the time we get home together, we know each other's day. We, we, you know, it's just the little things that tie you together. Uh, for, for a lot of couples, it's just as simple as, hey, once a week, we're getting out to Starbucks together. Uh, for some couples, it's like once every three months, we need to get away, uh, away from the kids, just a weekend away together. Uh, so it, for other couples, it's a, it's a weekly date night or something like that. So there's a, a variety of ways to do this, and, and you need to figure out what works for you. But if this person is not the top priority in your life, often it's just a time issue, right? The, the, that we've gotten so busy that other people are taking up our time. I know of uh, uh, one speaker I heard that he has this, his, this, uh, this tradition in his life that when anything exciting happens to him, anything great happens in his day, that he doesn't tell anyone until he tells his wife that night because he wants to share the excitement with her. You know how it is. You, sh- you tell 14 people during the day, and by the time you get home, what happened? Oh, nothing, you know? <laughs> so, so sometimes it's a time issue, but you know, oftentimes it's more than a time issue. Oftentimes when the person that you're married to is not your top priority, it's a sign that something is broken in the relationship. It's a sign that some of the deepest needs for emotional connection in the marriage are not being met in the marriage. And so what's happening is we're, we're getting them met outside the marriage, through our friends, through our kids, a worst case scenario, through an affair. But there's certain needs that aren't being met. And so, so if the person in your life is not the most important person, the question is, why is that? You need to think about that. You need to kind of process that, do some diagnosis. Why is that the case? Often the reason it's the case is because number two, our number two quadrant is out of balance, out of line. And that's why let's go on there, okay? Number two. The second word, the second quadrant, the second key puzzle piece is the word Intimacy. And I want to start with a quick definition, um, just a working definition for us today. And it goes like this. It's there in your note sheets. You can fill in the blanks. That intimacy is simply the sharing of the deepest part of me with the deepest part of you. It's a good, easy definition for intimacy. It's, it's about sharing the deepest part of me, hopes, fears, dreams, thoughts, feelings, motivations, What's the deepest part of me sharing that with you, having you share the deepest part of you back? And when that happens, it's in the sharing of souls that soulmates are created. People often say, well, well how, do you, you know, what, how do you make a soulmate? Or how does a soulmate create? Well, it's the sharing of souls that a soulmate is created. See, this is the secret that uh, we started the day with the story of Van and Davy and their relationship. And early on, they're making this decision that they would share everything. See, they, they stumbled upon a secret. The secret of a great love is the shared life, the shared experience, you see? And so now here's, here's the interesting thing, though. Just like we talked about with point number one, 
the first ingredient. This truth, if you look at new relationships, this is exactly how they work. When a couple meets and falls in love, um, that one of the things that always marks that relationship is a sharing of the soul. Uh, it's just very natural. I talked about this last week when I, when I do a wedding, you know, how I'll interview the couple to find out how they, they met so I can tell a story for their wedding. And, and it's always the same. This is the part that's always the same. There's always a sense of, wow, we just had such a natural connection with one another. It was so easy to talk. I've never, it's been so easy to communicate. They'll always have stories, long phone calls, long walks on the beach, long emails, uh, texting. You know, it's just, there's just constant communication, deep communication. Often it's a sharing at a deeper level they've ever shared with anyone. And it seems so natural. That's the thing. It's, just, it's one of the marks of a new relationship when you fall in love. And here's the irony, though. The irony is, is that often after we get married, for whatever reason, we stop sharing this deepest part of ourselves. Now, sometimes it's just a time issue, just like we talked about before. We're just so busy. You know, things come and life and kids and jobs and careers and all the things, and it's just house to take care of, and it's just a busyness issue. We already talked about that. But more often than not, we stop sharing because of a fear. And I want, you, I want to give you three of the most common fears that keep us from sharing in relationship. And for those of you who are single today, this is so critical for you as you're evaluating someone, do I want to spend the rest of my life with this person? You want to ask the question, do they have the ability to share this at this core level? Have they demonstrated the ability? You need to ask yourself, do you have the ability to do that? Because as we'll see, it's the most important part of a healthy marriage. But let me give you the three fears, all right? Fear number one. The first fear is the fear of rejection. <laughs> now, this is, a, this is a very common fear. You know, one, as human beings, one of our greatest needs is to be loved and accepted for who we are. This is what drives us. We all want to have someone with whom we can share, this is the truth about me, here's who I am, and be able to experience that love and acceptance with someone who understands us. It's one of our greatest human needs. In fact, one of our greatest fears as a human being is that someday we'll be exposed and people will know us for who we are and they won't like us anymore. So one of the greatest drives in a, in a, relation, a marriage relationship is we want to have someone who knows and accepts us. And here's the thing. In the early stages of a dating relationship, this happens really naturally because there's so much positive energy and chemistry going on. We just think each other are amazing, right? And it's like, you, you're amazing. Even your faults seem really rather cute to me, you know? And so you see this, you know? It's like you're telling your friend, well, you know, he's got this little issue, but, you know, it's just kind of cute, really, because if he was perfect, I wouldn't, he wouldn't be for me, and it just lets me know he's not perfect. And your friends are like, are you kidding me? I mean, his, that drives his mother crazy, it drives his friends crazy, it drives, you know, but you think it's cute, you know? It's the way it works. And so in this environment, in this environment of, of love and affirmation, rocket blast chemistry, it's so easy to share because there's so much affirmation. Everything you share is, thanks for sharing that. I can't believe you'd be so vulnerable. Thanks for, oh, thanks for trusting me with that. And so it just creates a natural environment that we share. Okay, now we get married. We move at some point into the orbit stage. And now it becomes much tougher, right? 
I can't tell you how many men I've talked to and said, man, I've struggled with pornography. I ask them, have you ever talked to your wife? Oh, I could never talk to my wife. Well, why not? This is one of the deepest issues of your life, and this is causing you one of the biggest griefs in your life. You can't talk to Oh, She could not handle it. She couldn't accept it. She couldn't. You see, there's a fear of rejection. He's holding back, sharing one of the deepest parts of him. You talk to a wife, and she says, that she struggled with an eating disorder. Have you shared this with your husband? No, I couldn't share it with him. He might see me differently. He might not accept. You see what happens? And what happens is we begin to pull back and we start holding off, sharing deep parts of ourselves because of a fear of rejection. A second fear. A second fear is a fear of conflict. <coughs> So if a couple doesn't figure out along the way how to work through conflict in a positive way, what tends to happen is over time they're becoming more and more topics that are off the table you can't talk about. You just know that we can't talk about your mother. We can't have that conversation. Uh, We can't talk about finances. She can't bring up the issue of wanting her husband to be more involved in the raising of their kids. He can't bring up the topic of the house and how it's often messy. Uh, they both can't, but you see, like, as time goes on, there becomes increasingly, we can't talk about this, and we can't talk about this, and we can't talk about this, and we can't talk about it. So one day we wake up, and the things that we can talk about are very few. How was your day? It's fine. How was your day? It was fine. Did you get the newspaper? Yes, I did. Wow, housing costs are going up. Yes, they are. Mortgages, uh, boy, the price of gas. You see? And so we paint ourselves into a corner where we can't share. Let me give you a third, a third uh, fear. A third fear is a fear of accountability. Now, um, early in this series, the first two weeks, remember what I told you. There's two first steps that we have to take if we want to get moved back to the garden and recapture God's vision for marriage. Remember that? The first step is we have to reconnect with our creator. We need to come under his leadership in our lives, right? So we have the power to change. We talk, then we need to make the decision the second week to recapture the character of the creator because it's impossible for two dysfunctional people to create a functional relationship. We have to become like him again. These have to become our top priorities. Before we ever focus on healing the marriage, we need to heal our vertical relationship so we have the power then to heal the marriage. We've talked about that. Now, here's why. Can I tell you something? It is impossible to have a relationship with emotional intimacy with people who are not growing people. It is impossible. And the reason is because of sphere of accountability. See, what happens is let's say we're married now, and I, I don't want to share with you my true thoughts, my true feelings, my true motivations, because I know that if I do, you will call me on them. And I'm not ready to be called on that. I'm not ready to change. If I share what I'm really feeling, you're going to tell me I have an anger problem. I don't want to face that. If, if, if I tell you what I'm really feeling, you might talk to me about my self-identity, my self, you know, where I'm, my self-worth and where it's coming from. Uh, if I tell you the real reason I don't want to go to Texas, that I don't want to see your family... 
you might talk to me about my attitude and growing in that area towards the family. And I know it's not your favorite thing, but I need to honor my parents. And don't you think sometime we should go? But if you don't want to go there, if you're not willing to look at your growth areas, what you're going to say is, hey, we can't go to Texas because the price of gas is too high and we can't afford it. And so we begin living these fake relationships We're not telling each other the real motivations, the real heart, the real thought. We're presenting an image to one another, and our images are now relating to one another. And can I tell you something? It's emotional intimacy that is the fuel of every relationship. And without it, your relationship will die, you see? And so what can happen is if we don't get this right, is we end up one day, we we wake up, and we have a parallel relationship. You live your life, I live my life, we're under the same roof, but it's not a shared life. You see, we are alone in our own marriage. Now, the question is, well, how do we we grow out of that? You know, how do we move towards emotional intimacy? And if you turn your page, the last page, there's a section there called your true self, three levels of sharing. Before we go into that, I want to read you a quote about the importance and the power of emotional intimacy. You were supposed to have this, honestly, and I just, I must have left it out or whatever. But, um, so it's kind of a long quote. It's by Neil Neil Clark Warren, and he is a, he's the founder of eHarmony, but uh, he's a Christian counselor um, before he did that. And he he wrote a great book many years ago uh, called Finding the Love of Your Life. And uh, in there, he talks about the role of emotional intimacy in a marriage. And I want to read this. It's a little long. I wanted you to have it, so I apologize for that. But it's so good. I want you to hear it, okay? He goes like this. He says, without question, the most important quality in a great marriage is intimacy. Okay? I want you you to let that sink in. Without question, the most important quality in a great marriage is intimacy. When you're intimate with the person you love, you create unlimited possibilities for the growth of your relationship. Intimacy has the potential for lifting the two of you out of the lonely world of separateness and into the stratosphere of emotional oneness. And that's our topic, right? Oneness, soulmates. Now, it says, conversely, catch this, the number one enemy of any marriage is a lack of intimacy. Number one enemy. If two people do not know each other deeply, they can never become what the Bible calls one flesh. They'll never be bonded fused, merged, or welded together. Without intimacy, they'll be isolated and alone even while living under the same roof. And he says, the kind of intimacy, now he's going to define it, the kind of intimacy I talk about involves a sharing of that which is innermost for two people. Their deepest thoughts, feelings, dreams, fears, and joys. It's when this core information is revealed that partners become acquainted with each other's inner workings, okay? So the question is, so how do we get there there? So, so if, you're, um, if you're single and you're looking for a relationship like this, what is the process you need to go through? If you're married, how do you, how do you approach this level of intimacy? So there in your note sheet, it's a section called Your True Self, Three Levels of Sharing. You've got a diagram there. Three circles. And um, we're going to fill in the outermost circle first. The PowerPoint will come up in just a minute. And so I want to talk to you about your three selves. Like every one of us has three selves. And so the first one is your public self. So let's fill in the blank. 
First, first circle represents your public self. Now, uh, the, this is the self that we show to the general public. This is your public image. There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, we all have one, as long as it's not overly hypocritical or fake or something. Well, the public self. So the public self is that you're, you're at work, uh, you're at church, you could even church, so, and, and someone says, how are you doing? And you say, fine. Okay, now the truth is you could be dying inside, right? But, but you don't say that, you just say, I'm fine. And, and it really is fine to say I'm fine, because if you told the person you're really bummed out, and you're going through a hard time, they'd say, look, I didn't really want to know. I was just being polite, right? And so, so this is kind of a general acquaintance level, and that's, this is fine, you know? So that's a, our public self. We all have one. Okay, number two. The second level is our personal self. Now we're going a little deeper. Now we're beginning to share some of our true thoughts, our true feelings, our true motivations, what's going on inside of us. And so, so now, you know, if, you were at the job before. Someone said, how are you doing? You're fine. You're really afraid. There's layoffs at your place, at your job. You're not sure you're going to keep your job. You're worried about that. You just say, fine, that's okay. Now, at the second level, this personal level, you're actually going to begin to share some of what's going on, some of your thoughts and feelings and so on. So maybe you're in a life group, and someone says, hey, Frank, uh, how are things going with your job? And, and you're in the group, and you share with them. You say, you know, actually, they're not so well. I'm really afraid I'm going to lose my job. Wow, it must be hard for you. Yeah, it really is. It's a tough time. And so you begin to share some true information. You begin to share some real information. You're moving closer to your true self. Now, you're still going to have some boundaries. You're still going to have some limits. You're not going to share everything, but you're going to share some true information about yourself, some real stuff. And this is a level we normally reserve for some of our, you know, maybe closer friends or, like I say, a life group, something like that, people that you're building some trust with. But there's a, a third level. And this is the level of our true self, and it's called your private self. Your private self is the real you. This is who you are when you're alone at night in the dark and no one else is awake. This is the real you. Most of us don't share it with a lot of people. There's some of us here that perhaps have never shared our real self. That's a sad thing to go through life never sharing our true self. Probably most of us here have someone in our life, one person, two people, three people, I don't know, it's usually a smaller group that really know the real story. Hey, Frank, how are you doing with your job? You not only tell it's hard and you're not only telling them you're worried, but you're willing to process that with them. You're willing to talk about your fear. You're not sure you can get another job. You're not sure where the money's going to come from. You're trying to trust God, but it's really hard. You're waffling back and forth. Your faith is not that strong at the moment. You might share that your dad had always said that you'd be a failure. And you're wondering if he's not true. It was a wound that was deep in your heart. You never got that healed, and it's coming up right now. And so you, now you're sharing the real stuff. You're sharing the real stuff that's coming out of who you are. That's what I'm calling your private self. Now, here's the point. If we want to move in our marriages, if you want to move in a dating relationship, to true emotional intimacy, it's a process. It's a process where we make a decision. We're moving from the outer circle, our public self. We're going to take a journey in towards the private self. It's a journey you don't make overnight. It's a journey you take step by step. You take small risk, but it's a journey you're determined to make. It's a decision a couple makes 
when it says we make the decision in our life that every year we want to know each other better than the year before. You see? This is a commitment that Van and Davy made, the story we started the day with. This is the secret that they stumbled onto, the secret of a great love. The secret of a great love is sharing. It's a sharing of the core of who we are and what we are. It's the most important part uh, of a great marriage. That's a great story. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, it's a book, the, the book who writes up the story is a book called The Severe Mercy. That's why that opening section is called that. It's written by Sheldon Vanakin himself. It's an amazing journey of their love and the lessons they learned over the years as they pursued that goal to become as close as two people could become. It's a great read. A fascinating thing is, like I said, when they started the journey, they were not Christ followers. But in the process, they ended up going over to Oxford to study at Oxford. They ran into C.S. Lewis who became a close friend of theirs. And then through C.S. Lewis, they became a close friend of Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing story. But whenever I think of the shared life, I think of Van and Davy, this decision that they made early on that we want to share our lives together. It's It's a secret of true intimacy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had in this series to reflect on this core relationship in our life. And God, we pray today that you would now mentor us throughout this week. You take these lessons that we've learned today and these principles and you begin to apply them by your spirit individually to our lives. For those of us who are single here, God, that you would begin to recast a vision of what this type of relationship might look like. That you might help us, if we're single, to know what that looks like to develop into that kind of person to put that kind of priority on a relationship. If we're married, God, that you'd show us what the first steps are, especially for those couples here that are very much in that parallel life existence. They're living life, and they're the first to admit it at the, at the, at the public level and show them what it would look like to begin to take small but significant steps to moving towards the center. And God, we pray you'd teach all of us what it looks like to experience this relationship that you've created the, the, the relationship you created in the garden for two to become one. We pray this in your name. Amen. Heart was made for you forever. Intimacy, priority, first two steps in this puzzle that we're putting together, what it looks like to be soulmates. And I hope you can join us next week. Next week should be a lot of fun. We're talking about sexuality. We're talking about spirituality. So there's something for everyone. And it uh, sh- should be great. Uh, may the Lord be with you. You know, when I, hear, when I see the wind blow, when I hear the wind blow, I, I can't help but think of Scripture. You know, in John chapter 3, it talks about the wind blows. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. And so is someone who is born again of God's Spirit. And God, you can't see God move, and yet you can see the effects. Think of Acts chapter 2, when, when it says that the church was together after Jesus left, like a mighty wind, the Spirit came in. Isn't this great? So, Lord, we just pray that your mighty wind would come upon us this week and blow through this place and blow through our lives. And may you experience his presence with us this week. We'll see you next week, and have a great week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org, where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. 
Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Thank you.